would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Again, the chapter divisions in our Bible are not of divine inspiration. And sometimes those who made these choices of separating chapters at given points did a very good job. Many other times they did not do a good job at all. And the division of chapter 6... Um, it seems to me, and even in the paragraph versions, um, 6, 1, 1, and 2 really do belong. Uh, maybe 6, you know, you know, at least 1 and 2 really belongs to chapter 5. It's a, a continuation of the argument that the Apostle has given um, with respect to the ministry of the Gospel, with respect to his Gospel message of a message of reconciliation, and the fact that he has been called, and he and his apostolic associates, um, to be ambassadors, um, pleading uh, to others in Christ's name to be reconciled to God, even pleading to the Corinthians to be reconciled to God. I know there's some who read the early chapter, the early part, as if it was just Paul's general calling to the world, but um, I think he, he says, we implore you, we implore you, in the words of verse forty, uh, verse twenty, uh, to on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God, and, and so this gospel was needed not only by the world at large, as truly the world needs the message of, of, of God's reconciling love and grace in Christ, uh, but even the church, uh, particularly a church like the Corinthian church, fractured with divisions and. Um, there's a need to live out the reality of the reconciling work of Christ because Christ not only reconciles us to God through the blood of the cross but reconciles us uh, to one another. And so this message of reconciliation the Corinthians themselves needed to hear. And because so many of their divisions were rooted in appearances, uh, rooted in uh, just being more allied with their culture than with the culture of the gospel, more allied with Greek understandings of just what were the marks of um, someone who is successful, someone who is um, properly to be seen as someone to be heard and listened to. Uh, Paul seemed, in their estimation, to be not uh, part of the people that were worthy of being heard because, look, he had so many troubles and problems as an apostle, so many afflictions, and um, he's going to record more of them in chapter 6, and these are things he says he glories in. Um, because these are the things that really mark out uh, the true uh, people of God because the true people of God are aligned with Christ who is the man of sorrows well acquainted with grief. Um, and we cannot rightly estimate um, gospel ministry based upon appearances. I was reading something of a woman's talk telling about how she got involved in a uh, group, of a church group, that um, really turned to be rather oppressive, dominating, demanding, cultic in a lot of its um, ways. But at first, she just saw a great, big, large church. And immediately she thinks, can this be of God? And that was probably a good instinct. Because, you know, the people of the world don't normally flock to um, a building in great numbers. Um, uh, again, God has his people throughout the world and he has, he has many people in some places and large churches are not necessarily a mark that you're not a, a, a faithful church. But yet, the, for her, her first instinct was, and she brought her family to this church that she'd uh, heard about and uh, was interested in joining or being a part of. And uh, their parents had that same instinct, but then they were kind of taken in by the, uh, the smooth talk of the, of the minister. And it came about that uh, in the time... He was like a smooth-talking con man, and, uh, and uh, it didn't end well. It didn't end well for him, the man, his, his ministry, his marriage, the church, um, all manner of things that she was telling about uh, that she got caught up in. And um, again, appearances can be um, something that you know we're not weighing in the light of proper criteria. Um, and we need to understand that um, you know, God has his people in all kinds of contexts and places, big churches, small churches, 
Um, the size is not the determinative thing. Um, and churches that are relatively problem-free and churches that are filled with troubles and problems. Churches in places where the church is under the gun, being persecuted, where pastors are in jail for the preaching of the gospel, and places where the people don't know anything of those kinds of hardships. And Paul, being on the leading end of the gospel proclamation, um, showed in his own, in his own, in his own um, life in ministry uh, the reality that this is a message that the world tends to despise. They tend to despise its preachers, uh, they tend to bring hardships upon uh, its exponents when you go into the battle uh, of the gospel in places of darkness seeking to bring its light um, people of the world look to squash the light and Jesus said this is the condemnation that light has come into the world of course speaking of himself as the light of the world men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds are evil their instinct is to extinguish the light it's too great a glare it's too great a um, a, a, a discomfort they, they're not pleased or happy in the presence of uh, those that would bring the light of God's truth um, and so their instinct is to oppose and to persecute and uh, why the Corinthians thought that they could be Christians in this world and not be under the uh, frown of the world uh, usually that's because in some measure you're looking to make some form of a compromise but um, the the, the focus of our unity is in the gospel that we stand for um, come troubles or come times of peace uh, if we're in favor or in disfavor if we're liked or disliked if we're loved or, or we're hated that's not the point of it how we're treated we can expect the world won't treat us with great hospitality welcoming us but in some points God can give the world a willingness to hear a desire to to learn and we sometimes the gospel does come in, in into periods of favor and perhaps at Corinth the believers there didn't see much of the hostility of a fallen world um, but they viewed Paul as one who was on the leading edge of troubles as someone who couldn't possibly be um, one of the leading apostles because would God allow him to endure those sort of things? Well, look what God allowed his son to endure. Made him to be sin for us, a sacrifice for our sins, though he knew no sin, that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. Um, God brings life out of death. He brings light in the midst of darkness. He brings joy in the midst of sorrow. He brings uh, times of peace and in the midst of conflict. And um, the reality is that um, uh, those who are aligned with Christ experience a, a, a plethora of different conditions and, and, and circumstances. And why that was a stumbling block uh, to the receiving of Paul is astounding to me. But Paul wants to make it clear that if he's not willing, the people aren't willing to receive him as Christ's messenger and Christ's apostle on the basis of that criteria, um, there's not much of a chance that they really are aligned with Jesus at all. And I think John, in 1 John, makes the statement that uh, he, was, he, he who is of God hears us. Hears us. Um, if you're of God, you hear the, the gospel messengers. You hear the, the servants of, of Jesus. The apostolic word is received. And Paul was a proclaimer of the apostolic word. And this message of the apostolic word is a message that calls upon the people of God to be reconciled to God through the death of, the, of God's Son and by implication reconciled to one another in the body of Christ, the church. And so in 6.1, Paul's really picking up on those themes he's already uh, spoken of that, um, uh, that God has committed to him and trusted him with the message of reconciliation in 5.19. Um, 6.1, working together with him we're his work, workmen. We're, we're, we are called to labor in his field, uh, using the language of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that um, we are God's workers and you are God's field. We're workers in the field. 
and uh, we're laboring together with him um, in the work he's given us to do. And it's in the light of that, he says, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable time I listen to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Now, verse 2 is a quotation. Uh, for he says, um, again, this is uh, speaking of the, the Old Testament, and the words that follow are a passage that comes from the book of Isaiah in chapter 49. And it comes from a place in Isaiah where Isaiah is giving us the servant songs. Now, there are some four of the servant songs that are found in Isaiah, one in chapter 42. One in chapter 49, one in chapter 50, and then the final one, I guess the most familiar one, is chapter 52 into chapter 53, um, in which we read about the suffering of the servant. But yet the sufferings of the servant are not just in chapter 53. The sufferings of the servant tend to build in the servant songs. The servant, in increasing measure, is becoming the, um, uh, the object of opposition. The opposition of a fallen world. And uh, there's indications even in uh, chapter 49 that this would be the case. Now we're very familiar with chapter 53. And chapter 53 likely is alluded to by Paul in 521 when he says, um, For he who knew no sin, he made to be sin. And that term, he made to be sin, uh, I suggested to you that he is referring to the sin offering. He was made to be a sin offering for us. Well, in chapter 53, it, um, it uh, actually says that Jesus, or the servant, was made to be an offering for sin. Um, look in chapter 53, um, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, verse, nine, uh, verse 10. He was put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. Or guilt is uh, the word that's translated in the uh, ESV. But he's made an offering for sin. He's made an offering for our guilt. The guilt that arises out of sin. So he's a sin offering. And uh, so it's clear to me that uh, the servant songs are in Paul's mind. It's not just the one portion that's quoted in chapter uh, uh, 6 and verse 2 that we're to consider. Uh, when we read quotations from the Old Testament... In the New Testament, don't just say, well, okay, he's quoted, uh, he's quoting Isaiah 49, and uh, the words of chapter 49 that are actually quoted, um, let's turn there, is in uh, verse 8. For thus says Yahweh, in a time of favor, I have answered you, in a day of salvation, I have helped you. And so there is this um, time this time of favor, this acceptable time, or this time of grace, or this time of favor, where God answers his servant. There is this day of salvation in which the help of God is received. As Paul says, in a favorable time, God hears his people. In a day of salvation, God comes to the help of his people. And so we might think, well, that's the only portion that Paul's concerned about, is just to quote this notion of a favorable of, of, of grace or favor in a in a in a in, in a time when help is needed, um, and that's certainly there. But why is help needed? Why is help needed? Well, again, you got to go back into the whole context of the servant song and really get the gist of it. I mean, it's not just a quote that's in Paul's mind. It's the section in which the quote is found that you have to go back and you have to read through. Now, what is this whole servant song about? Now, the servant is spoken of, beginning in verse um, 1, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me, made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant. Israel in whom I will be glorified. Now, I know a lot of comment is made about, uh, is this about the servant, singular, or Israel the nation? Well, in a sense, the nation merges in the servant. The, the nation becomes represented by the servant. 
the servant and the nation become one. And you see that in the life of Jesus. Jesus becomes the Israelite. He becomes the true Israel. He becomes the one in whom the nations are blessed. Again, that was what God said to to, um, Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And what was not achieved in Israel's experience because of idolatry, because of apostasy, because of rebellion, because of unfaithfulness, because of unteachableness, all which characterized the nation of Israel. At no point were they ever really well compliant with the will of God. Even in the time of the wilderness, when God brought them out of Egyptian bondage, uh, they were running to build a golden calf. Uh, They're hard of heart, they're stiff of neck, they're uncontrollable. Um, And God uh, brings the nation to perish in the wilderness. And then there seems to be a generation, according to Jeremiah, uh, that goes through the wilderness and seems to learn something of the lessons of God's grace, the generation that entered into Canaan. Yet even then, God says you got, through Jeremiah that he planted the vineyard in the land and the land became polluted. You defiled my land, is what God says. And really through the whole life of, 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 of um, General Joshua that led them in the conquest of Canaan, there's constant sins and inconsistencies. And the book of Judges is a total wipeout. It's a real mess of what happens when every man did what was right in his own eyes. And though there was a high period in the point of David's reign, yet in Solomon uh, you see idolatry, you see um, wives taken from foreign nations, um, you see a real slippage from the point of the high point of David, and of course the following sons of uh, Judah. There were some that were good, but many were not. Many did not walk in the ways of the Lord until the writing prophets come along, and you see the, the great sin of the nation that led ultimately to the Babylonian captivity, the Assyrians conquering the northern kingdom, and the Babylonians, the southern kingdom, for a 70-year period of, um, of exile. Uh, so the whole history was a history of, of um, failure to f- fulfill the, the, the calling that God gave them to be a blessing to the nations. And when God says he's going to raise up this servant, this servant becomes the faithful Israelite who comes to obey where Israel disobeyed, who comes to succeed where Israel failed. Again, we saw it uh, last week in Jesus calling himself the true vine. Um, The vine that God planted in Canaan, it didn't bring forth fruits of righteousness. It brought forth wild grapes and not righteousness and justice that God sought from from it. But Jesus comes to bring uh, the kingdom that is righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. So I won't be too troubled that uh, Israel is defined as the servant because uh, the servant is Israel. And he comes to fulfill um, Israel's calling and come to bring into play the blessings of Abraham um, to the nations that chapter 50 of Isaiah speaks about. But what happens with the servant? Again, uh, his mouth is like a sharp sword. Uh, I think the one in chapter 50 says that he's given the ability to uh, give comfort, uh, words of wisdom to give comfort or counsel uh, to those that are weary. Um, so he comes as the one who brings God's word uh, to, the, to, to the nations and um, in a way that is skillful, in a way that is like a polished arrow. Um, uh, and... Uh, Yet, in verse 4, the servant says, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing. In vanity. Now, his hope is, with, the, with Yahweh, yet surely my right is with Yahweh, my recompense with my God, but certainly when you look at the world in which he comes to labor, where's the fruit of his labor? Where's the result of all that he achieved? And again in chapter 50, it's uh, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's almost as if the answer is is, uh, no one. (laughs) Very few. Very few have come to faith as a result of the work of the servant. And yet God wants the servant not to be discouraged in his labor. And he says of the servant in verse 5, and now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him. His work is to bring Jacob back to him. Jacob usually refers to the northern kingdom, 
which of course was taken into captivity um, not too many years hence from Isaiah, I'm sorry, um, at this point in the book of Isaiah, this is really spoken in a period, at least in, it's really the Babylonian, Babylonians that are in view here, earlier on in the first chapters it's the Assyrians and they were taken captive in Isaiah's lifetime in 722 BC um, but yet now there's a hope of restoration of even that kingdom uh, that was taken captive by the Assyrians and their policy was to simply exile all their captive people into other parts of their conquered territories and to really crush them as a nation and to make them no longer to have any identity and God's going to bring a nation back to its identity in union with him that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God has become my strength. And so the hope of the servant here is in his God and in the fact that there will be a restoration of the nation being brought back to God. And yet the Lord's response to him in verse uh, 6 is, it's too light a thing. It's too small and insignificant a thing. It's like a feather. Nothing really weighty here, in that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. In other words, uh, God has plans for the servant that far exceed his most, uh, his most optimistic hope. His, his hope is the restoration of the nation. God says, forget the restoration of the nation. I have plans for my servant that go well far beyond anything that is just the raising up of the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation might may reach to the ends of the earth. And so look at the contrast. I spent my strength for nothing in vanity, and now I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Forget the labor for nothing and vanity there's substantial fruit that comes from the work of the, of the servant it's the gathering of the nations back to God not just one nation but the nations of the earth the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ and thus says the Lord in verse 7 the redeemer of Israel the holy one uh, to one deeply despised abhorred by the nation that's the servant the servant was despised and rejected by men in chapter 53. The man of sorrows will acquainted with grief. Here he's spoken of as despised, abhorred by the nation. And yet he's the servant, uh, I'm sorry, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and rise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, his chosen, who has chosen you. So though the nation despised you, uh, yet... Um, the rulers will prostrate themselves before you. They'll become your worshipers. The nations will submit themselves to the king, the true king, the rightful king. And thus says the Lord, in the time of favor, I've answered you. I've answered your fears. I've answered your sense of frustration. I've labored in vain. What's the fruit of the labor that I've engaged in? God says, here's the answer I've given. The nations will worship you. The nations will bow before you. They'll prostrate themselves before you. You'll be my light to the nations. And that my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. The time of favor is coming. Again, the time is not so much in Jesus' lifetime. It's after his death and resurrection, his ascension. But the time of favor came. It came in the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. It didn't come in Isaiah's lifetime. It didn't come in the time of the people that returned from Babylonian captivity. When the servant comes and the servant is raised and the servant is exalted and the Spirit of God is sent forth, God's will is that this gospel will be proclaimed in all of the earth as a testimony unto them. And the, the servant is going to have his people in all the nations of the earth. But here's the thing Paul sees himself in this passage. And I'm sure Jesus saw himself in this passage as well. This is referring to Jesus. This is referring to God's plan and purpose for the Lord. I'm sure when the scroll of Isaiah 50, uh, 49 was read in the, in the, in, in the synagogue, uh, and Jesus heard it and thought upon it and meditated upon it, or he had copies of it that he read on his own, his, his heart thrilled. He saw himself in, in this. And so in times of questioning and doubt, is this all for nothing? What's the fruit of all this? What's going to come of all this? 
Uh, will people have just, uh, uh, have I exercised all my labor and strength for nothing? Uh, he, he will have the, the reality of what God's promised him, of what God said will be. And for the joy that was set before him, he endures the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Um, again, that's how it works. The word of God ministers to his soul. And Paul saw himself in this passage. And we know that because in the book of Acts, in chapter 13, he, he tells us as much. Acts 13, I brought this to your attention just a couple weeks back, but I think it does bear repeating. Uh, again, Paul is laboring in the gospel in Antioch and Pisidia. And at first, it seems as though the people were well um, favored to hear his words, and they asked him to come back uh, the next week. In the next Sabbath, in verse 44, we read that the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Uh, but when the Jews saw the crowds, uh, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord commanded us, saying... Paul says, we've been commanded by God, saying, what's the command that God has given to us? Isaiah 49, the servant song. I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Wait a minute, Paul. That's not you, that's Jesus. That's the servant who dies and rises and is exalted. He's the salvation to the ends of the earth. And Paul says, but wait a minute, we're co-laborers with God. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and see if this makes any better sense. Paul says, we labor with him. There's not a a, a discontinuity, there's a continuity between the work of of Christ um, dying and rising and the proclamation of the message of his dying and rising. The apostolic word that goes forth to the ends of the earth, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Well, we've heard that before. Again, the labor of the servant. He says, have I labored in vain? Have I done all this in vain for nothing? Has it come to nothing? No fruit? No prop, No benefit? No result? Again, are you Corinthians going to remain divided at war with one another? Is this going to be a church that is a disgrace to the gospel and the message of reconciliation? Or will you be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another? And put away your enmity. Again, the appeal he gives is you have to persevere in faithfulness. You have to continue on in the light of the gospel. God's made Jesus to be a light to the nations. And you, Corinthians, as part of the nation that's received the message of the king, um, you need to receive that message, not in vain, but with profit. With fruit that's born for God's glory. Now again, it's not the picture of uh, some inward grace that God's looking to give to the Corinthians that they're resisting and fighting against. And it's not it's not a question of divine sovereignty of what we sometimes call um, efficacious grace or irresistible grace. That's not an issue here. This is the grace of the gospel message. This is the grace of what's proclaimed. The grace of a reconciling God. The grace of a God who in Christ reconciles the world to himself, not imputing to us our trespasses, who made Christ to be sin for us, that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, are you going to be the righteousness of God in him in your relationships with one another? Are you going to live out the gospel? If you're a true believer, you will. If you've really received the gospel message, you will. Unless you believed in vain, uh, that you received this grace, this message of grace in vain, to no profit. And so Paul's saying, prove yourself 
but your obedience to the gospel. Now again, he's not calling them to receive a, a different message. The problem is they were getting a different message from the false apostles. They were getting a different Christ, a different message. And Paul says you've got to put away those, that false stuff and receive the grace of the gospel to profit. And then when Paul thinks about this whole matter, will this message that he's preached, that he's labored, I mean, he spent a lot of time with these Corinthians, hasn't he? Hasn't he? 18 months he was in their their midst. He wrote the first letter to them in the light of the whole set of problems that he unpacks and discloses. Then there was the the painful visit that he speaks about. He speaks about the letter that he wrote to them with some measure of anguish as well. The difficult times and experiences with them. And yet he's soldiering on. He's persevering in the message of the gospel, bringing it to them. Is this all in vain? Well, just as Jesus was given a message of God with respect to being my salvation to the ends of the earth, a light to the nations, um, so Paul says, Isaiah 49 says, in a favorable time, I listen to you. I listen to the complaints of my servant. My servant who said, have I labored in vain? God says, no, you haven't. You might think you have, but you haven't. You might fear that you, you will, but no, you won't. Because in a favorable time, I listen to you. In a day of salvation, I've helped you. I've helped my servants who call upon my name. I've helped this church that calls upon my name. Just as I heard my son who called upon my name in the servant song. That's so interesting how in the scriptures, the things that Jesus prays for are things that the church is called to pray for as well. Um, again, the words of, of, of Jesus' prayers, particularly in the Psalms, become words that the people of God in general come to pray for. I, I think particularly of Psalm 2. I'm thinking of, of Psalm 2. Uh, you know what God says? He says, ask of me. Ask of me. And I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. Ask and I will give. Ask and I will give. And then we see in the Gospels, that's what Jesus tells his, his disciples. Ask, and he will give. Ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. So the very things that uh, Jesus prays for, the, uh, the, uh, or the, um, uh, God tells him to pray for, the nations will be given to you. The uttermost parts of the earth for your possession, they're the things we're, we pray for. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, again, I think you see the, the, the unity of Christ and, and his laborers. The unity of the work of Christ and the work of his laborers. They're all of one piece. And just as the servant had a favorable answer to his prayers in a time of distress, God's people have favorable answers to our prayers in times of distress. And Paul then says, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time when God's people call upon his name and we're not excluded from his, 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 his concern, his care, his, his wise dealings and gracious um, purposes with respect to his people. So I think that does belong to the previous section and sort of fills out what, what Paul has been saying about his his work as a gospel laborer. That doesn't mean tough times don't come. That doesn't mean he's not going to fight with uh, beasts at Ephesus, as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, or that he's not going to have uh, the sentence of death within himself, that he might learn to trust in God who raises the dead, as he says in chapter 1 of this letter. It's not that he's not going to face a whole host of troubles and problems he has and he will and he does but in the midst of it uh, he has what Jesus had the promise of God's hearing his prayers and answering his prayers in ways of grace and in ways of favor saying this is not in vain you do not labor in vain of course that's how Paul concludes uh, 1 Corinthians 15 in the light of the resurrection therefore be steadfast unmovable always abounding in the work of the Lord for 
you know your labors are not in vain in him. So I think that's where chapter um, 5 really does end in chapter 6 and verse 2. And then Paul picks up on that, of the fact of um, a God who favors his people and his servants in all their troubles and all of their difficulties when they think that all their labor may well be in vain. Um, God's plan is, no, (laughs) there will be fruit born for your labors. Paul then then doesn't just say, well, if that's true, if that's true, there will be fruit born from our labors regardless of what external circumstances come our way. That means it doesn't matter how we behave ourselves. That doesn't ma- then it doesn't matter how we conduct ourselves. You know, we can be proudly self-confident and authoritarian and telling people what for and pre- preaching fire and brimstone to people to cringe in fear doesn't, doesn't matter how we, we behave ourselves in the world we'll, we'll, fruit will be born God's plan will be leading the church to prosper Paul says no 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 he says we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry we're not looking to antagonize people and hurt people and tell them, well, we have a message from God, and therefore you must submit, and if you don't, well, we're just going to holler at you quite a bit, and scold you, and berate you, and tell you what for. No, no. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. Now, people may provoke us, but we don't provoke back. People may berate and trouble us, but we don't berate and trouble them back. All the vilification comes one way. It comes from a hostile world. It doesn't come from a hostile church. The church is not a force for hostility in the world. The church is a force for reconciliation in the world. The message of reconciliation with God and with others that we endeavor by God's grace to live out. We endure what the world throws at us. But we don't say, well, we're going to so live and act and behave and plot and scheme and do what we can uh, just to cause the world to be outraged. Not at the gospel. They're outraged at the gospel. What are you going to do? That's their hearts. But to be enraged at us, that's a different story. Paul says we don't give any cause to be enraged at us, though they'll be enraged at us because they hate our character, because they hate our message. That's all acceptable. Not because we're hard, hard and cruel and indifferent people who are just out for our own things and are out for our own advancement. And uh, No, no. We put no obstacle in anyone's way. No fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And Paul's going to say, by what way we commend ourselves? Well, great endurance in afflictions, in hardships, in calamities, in beatings, in imprisonments, in riots, in labors, in sleepless nights, and hunger. Those are all external situations the apostle himself was exposed to. That the people of the world uh, placed upon him. And all that evil, all that wicked hostility, they threw at him and nothing did he strike back. In nothing, he said, well, I'll give them back a little bit of what for because of what I got from them. There was no revenge. There was no... Um, bitterness in the heart of this apostle. He endures these things for the sake of the elect. He endures these things and goes on and preaches. He's stoned in one place. He picks up and goes to another place. He's beaten in a prison in Philippi. 
He's released and he goes on to Berea, goes on to Thessalonica. He's persecuted there. He moves on. He moves on to the next place and he preaches. And he goes back to many of those places and he preaches some more. In the midst of all of the external hardships that he is exposed to, again, there's nothing of a sense of, well, you know, this is useless. This is, this is without profit. Who cares about these sinners? Let them go to hell for all I care because that's where they deserve to be. They deserve to go. Just go to hell. And uh, I can just rejoice knowing they'll get theirs eventually. God will judge them. Paul's heart is still filled with mercy and compassion. He endures all these things and presses on, continues on. Again, not by violence or bitterness or hostility or with the desire for revenge, he says, by purity, by purity. His heart was bent on one thing. There was nothing of a mixture of motives. His heart was bent on one thing, to please Christ, as he says. We seek to to do all things while pleasing in his sight. There's a purity in Paul's motives by knowledge, seeking to spread the knowledge of of the Lord uh, throughout the earth Uh, coming to know him better as a result of the troubles and persecutions that I've exposed to he says in the Philippian letter uh, that um, that, um, knowing him in the 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 verses are coming to me let me turn to it Philippians chapter 3 Concession to age, you got to turn to the chapters. Can't just quote it from memory. Here we go. Chapter 3. He says in the words of verse 10 that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Well, that's good. Knowing him and the power of his resurrection. That sounds hopeful. That sounds promising. That sounds joyful. But he goes on, and they share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And if by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So it's not just in the joyful times, knowing the power of his resurrection. We ascend over that set of circumstances, and resurrection power, we triumph. But even in the midst of the sufferings, we must share his sufferings. The world that hated him will hate us. The world that persecuted him will persecute us. The world that rejected him will reject us. And Paul says that I might know him in the midst of it, that the knowledge of the Lord would come to be um, something he would experience in greater dimensions. So Paul's concerned with knowledge and patience and kindness. Kindness. Christians are to be kind even in an unkind world. It's not a concession to human sin to be kind. The pastor, didn't you denounce them? I remember when I first came to Pinebush, I was asked to be involved in a Thanksgiving service. They told me that I could preach, and I preached at a Thanksgiving service. And I had a brother, I told him, a group of pastors in the area, they had this Thanksgiving service in the town and uh, well who was there well it was the Methodist guy there was the Presbyterian the United Presbyterian the PCUSA well did you tell them how they wrong they were <laughs> did you denounce them they gave you the pulpit you should have denounced them now there will come a time perhaps to talk about denouncing them but hey let's leave with kindness for, for a moment let's try to not put an obstacle in the way of the gospel Let's try to give people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they know the Lord. Maybe they are seeking to honor Christ as, just as much as we seek to honor Christ. Be kind. Lead with kindness. The Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. Showing forth the graces of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit that's love, joy, peace, and long-suffering, and the rest. Genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Not 
not swords to pierce and cut and wound and you know, I, I try not to look at Twitter feeds that are sent to me but every now and again I pick up on something where somebody's said something about um, just the peaceableness of the gospel and, uh, and some guy said yeah but he, Jesus told him to take up a sword and one time he said that one time he said that he said uh, come not to bring peace but a sword at one time he said that so you know mark that and mark that in, 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 in purple and now look at all the times he spoke about love and kindness and um, how many times did he say that of course in the context I mean they took up a sword and uh, he says put up your sword oh he was using it offensively and not defensively wait a minute they, these guys were coming at them with swords and clubs looking to arrest them People argue what they want to argue. But the overwhelming testimony of the word of God is that the weapons we hold in our hands is not to pierce and cut and wound and hurt, but to heal and strengthen and bless and minister to others and show, show kindness and compassion. It's, it's, it's righteousness that are the weapons that will avail, that will be used of God to humble the hearts of sinners and bring them captive to the obedience of Christ. He says, through honor and dishonor, however we're treated, they may honor us, welcome us, give us a place of distinction at their, at their tables or at their meetings or whatever, or dishonor when they won't give us the time of day. Through slander and praise, we're treated as imposters, and yet we're true. Whatever they think of us, we know who we are. We know who we are before God. We're not imposters, we're true. As unknown, and yet well known. I mean, people want to be popular, they want to be known, they want to be influencers. They want to have their own YouTube channel and have so many people subscribing and so many people liking their Facebook and Twitter posts and such. Yet well known. The important thing is we're known to God. We're known to those that love God and known to those that value the the things of God along with us as dying and behold we live. As punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich. As having nothing yet possessing everything. How could you stop a guy like Paul? He couldn't. He couldn't. Regardless of whatever he experienced, he was not going to vary, vary from his commitment to his Lord. He was going to live before the eye of his God. And nothing you could do to him, and nothing you could throw at him, and nothing that you can assail him with was going to destroy him. He, was going to, he knows who he, he is. He knows what blessings he possesses and resources he has. He knows whom he serves. He knows his present. He knows the future. What will be. He knows what God has given and will give. There's a man who's strong in faith and confident in hope. Busy with the work that the Lord had given him to do to do that work perseveringly. What a picture Paul gives Again, it's a picture of himself. It's a picture of his gospel ministry. It's a picture of his perspective upon the world. And I think in hearing Paul's understanding of his own life and ministry, there ought to have been a sense of shame that would come upon the Corinthians in hearing it. Saying, well, what do we know of this kind of freedom from human opinion? Joy in the things of the Lord strength in the midst of our weaknesses. I've often told you about the incredible scene that took place in Northampton in the colonial days when Jonathan Edwards, the pastor of the Northampton church, was um, censured by his people and they, they defrocked him. They evicted him from the ministry. The ministry where he had been the means of bringing many to faith, the means of great revivals the Lord had brought. 
and the congregation that were the recipients of just an outstanding ministry of biblical teaching and biblical exposition gave Jonathan Edwards his walking papers saying, you can't be pastor here any longer. And the vote wasn't even close. It was by an overwhelming majority they evicted him from his ministry. And someone who was there and saw what took place was he said, the man of God took the shock unshaken. I love that. He took the shock unshaken. As a man whose, whose pleasures were not dependent upon people, whose hope was, was higher than anything his enemies could do to him. That's the kind of life I aspire to. I aspire to this kind of life that Paul lived, regardless of situations and circumstances, to, um, again, know who he is, knows what he possesses, um, not retaliating, not being filled with bitterness, because he knows his labor is not in vain. He concludes this section saying, we've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. He speaks to them in way of direct address, Corinthians. You Corinthians, we've spoken freely to you. Our heart is wide open. We've not held anything back. We've opened our hearts to you. And the problem is not that you are restricted by us, that we are excluding you from any part of our own life, or we're not welcoming you to any part of our own life and experience. Uh, You're restricted by your own affections, your own paltry affections, your heart that's not open as our hearts are open. Our heart is wide open to you. Your hearts are constrained and confined and limited and self-absorbed. In return, he says, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Reciprocate. We've opened our hearts to you. As to children, widen your hearts also. You're our children in the Lord. You've had many teachers, he says in the first letter, but only one father in the faith. I, in, I begat you uh, through the gospel. Through the gospel, these people came to faith. As my spiritual children emulate your spiritual father. Open your hearts to us as we have opened our hearts to you. Again, the picture that Paul gives of himself as a gospel minister is one of openness, of full transparency. Where you, 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 you in Paul's presence, and you would say, uh, there's, there's, there's no hidden something somewhere in Paul. Everything's out of the table. You know, we say what you see is what you get. That's really what it was with Paul. What you see is what you get. He um, was the transparent man, the man fully transparent before the people of God. Again, it's something uh, to aspire to. Any questions about Paul's presentation of himself and his ministry to the Corinthians and just why that type of understanding and teaching is um, really rooted in the reality of Christ's own afflictions and uh, death and dying and rising and the hope that was set before Jesus is the same hope that, uh, that Paul uh, engaged in, resurrection hope, um, just the power of a new life, and uh, with a wholehearted and um, Christ-centered commitment and determination uh, to weigh and evaluate all things by the light of him who loved him and who gave himself for him. Any comments, questions? before we move on. This is the problem that was in the church. Their divisions internally, their hostility and hatreds and um, ill will and hard feelings towards one another. And um, Paul's probably not unaware of where some of this came from. Maybe all of this came from. Is they're hanging around with the wrong people. They're getting the kind of pressure from the world that no Christian really needs. That's not 
help to grace. Is this for our world a friend to grace to help us unto God? Oh no. No. Um, again, back in the first letter, he speaks of um, you know, the doctrine of the resurrection, and he, he, he said, makes this, the comment that um, evil companions corrupt good morals, he says. Um, if you would be wise, uh, the proverb says, be a friend of the wise. Look to hang around with the wise people of the world. Not the wise guys, but the wise people of the world. The people who are wise. And you learn wisdom. The companion of fools, the proverb says, well, smart for it. It's not saying you're not to be kind to the people of the world. That you're not to be charitable and concerned with their well-being and interests. But don't be yoked with them. And the picture of being yoked with them is the farm animal that's laboring in the field and he's put into a, a yoke with other animals to pull the plow in the same direction and in the same way. But you don't yoke animals unequally. In other words, you don't yoke a cow with a kitten. That's a crazy illustration. <laughs> I don't know how you would construct a, a yoke to put under a cow and a kitten. <laughs> but, um, they couldn't operate together. They couldn't function together. It doesn't work. If you're going to have animals, they're going to pull a plow. You've got to have a couple of the same kind of animals with the same stature and build and not unequally yoked together. When they're placed under the same yoke to pull the plow. He says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You're trying to labor for the gospel, and you're getting under the same yoke with the people of the world who are serving completely different interests. And they're pulling in a completely opposite way. You you get under the same yoke with your brothers and sisters, all pulling in the same direction, all moving in the same way, all looking to accomplish the same ends. He says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Now again, it's not saying that we're not to have dealings with the people who are darkness. We can't be light in the world if we don't have contact with the darkness of the world. We're in the midst of the darkness, holding forth the word of life. But in terms of pulling in the same direction, it's a question of who's influencing who. Who's influencing who? Are you seeking to be light to influence the darkness of righteousness, to influence lawlessness? Or are you being yoked together with them? To serve together with them? To move in the same directions with them? He says, what accord has Christ with Belial? That's the old Old Testament uh, term for the, um, the worthless fellows. The, the, the uh, Belial means uh, people who are wor- worthless. Um, it's a very uh, uh, um, uncomplimentary term that's used of, uh, of wicked people in the Old Testament. What uh, portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And so Paul makes these statements to indicate that there's something about um, God's people that is qualitatively different than the people of the world. And we don't qual- we don't compromise that difference. Uh, we don't allow the people of the world to influence us in ways that we lose our distinctiveness as God's people. And I'm looking at finally I'm seeing that clock there. I see both hands rather clearly and realizing I'm getting past my time. But it's when Paul gets to the point of the temple, he has something else to say about who and what we are as the temple of the living God and he brings a quotation from the book of Leviticus and I think it's also um, a quotation from Isaiah as well. And to those quotations we'll look at God willing next week. But you might want to read in preparation for next week Leviticus 26 uh, I think it's verse 12 and then Isaiah 52 and verse 11 and do that with the recognition as I've already mentioned that uh, you don't just look at the um, immediate words but try to get a bigger picture of what's going on in that Old Testament passage because it's to that that Paul's addressing the quote, the the bigger picture. So, anyway. 
Our time is gone. Thank you for your patience. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful for this time in the scriptures, how rich your word is and how it does convict us and it does um, shed light upon our own places of darkness. Lord, give us, we pray, a heart to labor together with you in the ways that the Apostle Paul did. And again, not to grow weary in our well-doing and know that in due season we will reap if we faint not that we're not on the losing side of anything in this life, even if our own expectations, our own desires have not been fully met, that we're thankful, Lord, that you are the God who has for us as your children that which will exceed our every desire. When we see you face to face, when we're in the presence of the King, there won't be a complaining heart. Help us not to be complaining in this life. Help us to be rejoicing in your goodness, in your love, in your provisions, in your sufficiency. We ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless us as we greet one another this morning. We ask you to bless us as we fellowship with one another and enter into the morning hour of worship as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.